everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Mission Daily. This is Stephanie Postel, COO of The Mission, and I'm joined, as always, by Chad Grills, CEO of The Mission. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> or are you having me on? It is kind of your thing. I, it's not. It's not my thing. It's, yeah, it's everybody's thing. I'm excited to be here. And we have part two of the book club. Yep. So in part one, we uh, went through zero to one and we did that one live on Facebook. It was great. We only made it to chapter six. We had a wonderful combination of technical difficulties. The studio was heating up because the AC wasn't fully on and just a yeah, whole host of other things and fun challenges. So thanks for bearing with us. And this second part of the episode is going to be fun because we're going to dive into the rest of the book. And although we don't have live comments or anything like that, we're going to try to keep this as lively as possible because this is a really important book. And I feel like every single chapter in this book has an insight that you do not have to be in startups to use. You don't even have to be in technology uh, or information technology to use. So hopefully that each you know chapter and each big idea here is something that you're going to be able to use and implement today. Agree. So maybe a good way to kick it off not all at is once, me ragging you on you and Ian. Sorry. How's that sound? Oh, please, please. Yeah, please do. So I didn't know this was going to turn into a roast, but um, I mean, it's about you might as well to. since you since you started. Yeah. Ian loves to roast with me. So we get <laughs> I get to roast you two now. So when you guys were talking about doing the Facebook Live episode and all that, I was thinking you guys are in a definitely optimistic bucket where you think you're going to get through an entire book going chapter by chapter in under an hour. And when you guys well, told me you wanted to do that, I laughed. Well, paragraph by paragraph was too much, so we decided <laughs> chapter by chapter would be a bit more conservative. We oh, could try okay. to break it into thirty minutes. Uh, no, no, no. no. So I'll, I'll pick up where you guys left off at chapter six. So chapter six breaks it up into four different types of mindsets. There's indefinite pessimism, definite pessimism, indefinite optimism, and definite optimism, which is where I grouped you and Ian in. So I'll go through them. Indefinite pessimism is an outlook to a bleak future with no idea what to do about it. Definite pessimism is the future can be known and must be prepared for because it will be bleak. That's sad. Yikes. Indefinite optimism is the future will be better, but there's no way of knowing how, so no plans will be made. Pollyanna. Okay. <laughs> and definite, definite optimism is the future will be better than the present if the proper plans and actions work out. So you said you put yourself in that bucket. Maybe do you want to and explain I, on that a bit? Yeah. So I, I would... Uh, change the last one to say, you know, definite optimism is not just the future uh, will be better than the present if. So there's no if there's no no qualifier there. Definite optimism is about speaking actually in definite future tense when you have analyzed things from first principles and you know what is possible in the future. When you combine that with whether it's market research or your intuition or uh, if you're a prophet out there and you've seen the future and you're sure and you've tested it in small ways. Um, it could be, you know, what you know is going to happen at work today. That's, you know, a form of prophecy. If you're definite about it, uh, try predicting the future in small ways and then acting as if that's going to happen or better yet, taking all the necessary precautions to make it happen. That type of definite optimism is all about taking full agency for everything that goes on. There's no chance. There's uh, no fate because you're going to master it. And that's a powerful, powerful mindset that uh, I just, I really hope more people uh, at least explore. Don't have to believe it. Just try it. Yep. Love it. Might be hard, but in the end, it'll be worth it when you look back on, yeah, your whole life of saying like, I took full agency. So any failure I had 
it's because of, you know, what I did or didn't do. And any success is 100% my own. It wasn't just chance or luck or anything. Like I had been working towards that forever. Here, here. All right. So the next one, I was thinking we kind of like skip around, not go chapter by chapter. We'll go up to chapter eight now. Sounds good. <laughs> so we can go into chapter eight, which is called Secrets. Yes. And I like this a lot because in the beginning of the book, um, Peter says, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And then this whole book is like, well, there wouldn't be any good answers to that question if there was no more secrets. And everyone always has pretty, I mean, I've heard a lot of really good answers to that question before. Do you have a good answer to that question? And how do you feel like that ties into the whole secrets piece of it? Yeah, so um, I do. But I think that uh, secrets are something that is, uh, they've been dramatized so much and so many people have really just wrote you know, ruin the idea that it's it's actually secrets are something that's really powerful to either keep to yourself or only share with the as uh, Peter brings up in the book the smallest group that you can convince that these are true and that's that's really exciting because the type of uh, secrets that appeal to a wide audience are the type of secrets that might not be as valuable they might not even be secrets. And I think that we've kind of, in this modern day and age, lost the art of patience and of just sitting and just being very, very content and confident with our knowledge, what we're betting on, what our daily actions are devoted towards. So I think that that's kind of like a lost art of just being secure in your knowledge that, you know, you don't have to prove everything. You don't have to have an idea that wows everyone or gets a lot of likes or retweets on any type of uh, social media or anything like that. Um, You can just yeah, be content, test it. Uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of the scientific method. So there's a great book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that's a, a tactical guide to gaining confidence in finding secrets. So that's that's kind of like what I would point to, to, yeah, find find secrets. What do you think has changed from the past where people could kind of hold on to those secrets to today where, I mean, even I find it pretty hard myself to, if I you know, I'm excited about something that I'm doing for you or something happened in the background that I'm like, all right, I'm going to wait to tell Chad this because I think it'll be fun to wait until Saturday. I usually can't. I'm so excited. Like, so what's the difference no, same, from then and now? Same here. I, you know, I find myself doing the same thing. Like the second anything big happens, it's very tempting for me to like rush, tell you, tell Ian, uh, tell the team, anything like that. And I, I think that it's a, a challenge that each of us have to, to basically like hold on to some of those sometimes and let the collection of wins or secrets or what we've just discovered kind of build up until it gets to like a, a really critical mass so you can have an actual surprise uh i don't know what why this this is or why it feels like we have this like really big pull to like always want to validate things and always want to get confirmation maybe it's um, because you can now you've got the tech in your hand where you can tell people instantly we're back in the day easier they yeah. couldn't do any of that yeah no that, that's a that's a great point that's definitely a contributing factor for sure i think because we're surrounded by so many different inherited technologies where we didn't create them, but it's a situation where someone else who came before did, whether it's culture, whether it's the information technology or smartphones, we've inherited all of these technologies. And in fact, many of them, the costs of them have been subsidized by previous generations, by rich people, by government grants, by universities, um, by private investors, like the list goes on. And so in a sense, we're so, so fortunate that we get access to these but we can't appropriately value them. So there's this tendency to use them for minutia. There's a tendency to use them to 
basically take little, little bets in terms of what we think is right or what the future is going to be, and then rush to get confirmation to see if that bet is correct. In a lot of ways, I, that's how I view Twitter, is you don't need very much uh, courage to, uh, to use it. And I say this as someone who uses Twitter. So not yeah. like not that often. Um, but the point being that it's kind of like, you know, if you have less conviction, it's uh, a place where you can get confirmation very quickly. Uh, and that's kind of insidious because it creeps up on you. And before you know it, you're not taking long bets where you work on a project or do something for a year. Uh, you're doing things where you seek confirmation from other people and you're not going to, you know, you might not get it. Yep. Got it. All right. So chapter 10, the mechanics of mafia. So they say build a culture. <laughs> so yeah, th this is, this is really tricky. So I think it's like, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's a, a lot of like jokes and like rah-rah around, um, you know, oh, you have to build a cult in a company and stuff like that. And it's uh, really, really overplayed. So a uh, cult Peter defines in the book as a group of people who are fanatically wrong about, and that's so, so helpful because we need a definition that is very negative of uh, people, of failed religions, of quirky, you know, groups that are just wrong and, and weird, not in a, you know, original way, but in a uh, dangerous way. Uh, and obviously if people aren't hurting others, that's an entirely different situation, but we're talking about the groups of people that are wrong in a way that's like detrimental to uh, society or that has spillover effects, things like that. That's not what you want. That's on one end of the spectrum. It's very negative. We're not talking about that. On the other end of the spectrum though, it is possible to have a group of people that is right about something, that is right about a shared group of secrets and uh, is able to change the world, whether that group of people is small, say like, you know, a handful or 12 in number or up to Dunbar's number of 150 or maybe even beyond. Uh, there are plenty of big companies that I think have assembled really impressive collections of secrets that are changing the world and giving new things to, you know, so many opportunities to people that it's amazing. But at the end of the day, culture is a Latin word for caring. And that's what people I think have forgot in this equation. And so whether it's a company or a group that, like we mentioned in the book club of, you know, small group of people you're trying to convince to do a better activity this weekend, that's a form of a culture that you're building. Uh, it's a temporary culture. Maybe it washes away at the end of the weekend, or maybe you have some, uh, some funny jokes and some funny stories and nostalgia that will remain. That's, uh, you know, one example of a culture there that anybody can get started building today. Got it. All right. Let's move on to chapter 12, Man and Machine. So this is something we've talked about pretty in depth before about people being worried that robots or AI or whatever are going to take jobs or, you know, replace people. And I thought there was a really good point in Peter's book about how PayPal is losing $10 million a month from credit card fraud. And the solution was to actually assemble human analysts um, with algorithms. So the human analysts would come in and review the transactions that were flagged by the algorithm. What are your thoughts around, you know, robots and AI and all this coming into the workplace and how can we uh, convince people that they're not going to be taking jobs? Yeah. So anytime we talk about AI or anytime that you see AI online, people are generally talking about machine learning. They're not talking about AI. And when you see this, it's very tempting to think, OK, general AI is here. Uh, I've already seen Terminator a couple of times. I know how this plays out. Um, where is John Connor? And in reality, though, Technology gives us superpowers. It allows us to do more with less. Each of us have a remote control for the real world that allows us to do our smartphone, that allows us to do incredible things. And 
in many, many cases. Um, so I just got back from uh, today, a great meeting at a company that many people are scared of. And when you ask them, or they have misconceptions about, and when you ask them what exactly they're scared about, they might point to the first like two to three uh, Google search results about this company. And meanwhile, it's these results, they're just not true. Yeah. And it's uh, a result of people thinking that this is some type of AI or you know something along those lines. If you look at what the company actually does, so they basically give people the equivalent of a PhD with their software. Mm -hmm. So instead of getting a PhD in data science, if your company buys this software, you and your employees or whoever they buy it for, whoever they buy licenses for, can also gain the equivalent of a PhD in data science. That opens up a whole host of opportunities where instead of spending five to seven years or whatever it is, retraining and getting that PhD, uh, you know, and meanwhile, the world is moving on. So you're probably going to be behind. There's no chance that it's going to be relevant. You can get started at work right now and start learning about data science from a very elevated position. So this is a situation where um, AI, there's a lot of hype about it. There are things to worry about, uh, aut autonomized weapons and um, things like that. Those are obviously horrible. I'm not advocating those or I'm not advocating drone strikes or uh, generally anything like that. But I am advocating that people explore the idea that technology is generally going to give us superpowers and it's ultimately neutral. It's something that we can wield for good uh, or people can wield it for evil. And it's on the people that have morals, virtue and courage to wield technology for good. Yep. All right. So chapter 14, the founder's paradox. So the one piece in here that I thought was interesting was saying that um, basically making sure the founder isn't so certain of their own myths that they lose their mind. What are your thoughts around losing your mind as a founder? Yeah, so this this is really interesting because the examples that Peter brings up in the book are generally all musicians or artists. And I think he does this for a number of reasons. But if we look at why many artists join the 20, the proverbial, like uh, I think it's called the 27 Club where a number of famous artists have died at 27. That's okay. That's like a, a pretty, pretty big rabbit hole. Um, but the, the point is that, and also, I mean, that's, that's basically an industry that can do quite well after you're gone, which leaves mm -hmm. a number of questions for people that want to uh, consider those. But the bottom line is it's on each of us to stay grounded. And obviously like truisms, like staying humble, they, they apply everywhere. And in the musician artistry space, I think it's very easy for those individuals to get singled out and isolated from the crowd and kind of like uh, set up for failure by um, nefarious handlers and managers and people that hang on. And whether it's like drugs or alcohol, it's very easy to succumb to uh, just overwhelm in those situations. And so many of those people are uh, artists, especially like um, good art is unfortunately or fortunately comes with like trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs is uh, pain. And so many different founders and artists uh, suffer from whether it's like being bipolar or depression or, you know, many people choose not to uh, put a label on it. And I, and I think that's great because there's a, a whole spectrum of human emotions that we're just now starting to have a public dialogue about. And that's very, very healthy. So more dialogue about mental health. That's great. Um, if you're struggling out there, you're not alone get help, do what you need to do. Um, don't worry about the labels that uh, other people put on you. Um, generally just yeah, try to get well. But with founders, with artists, with people that are really putting themselves out there, it can be overwhelming and it can be very tough to find meaningful connection that is not predicated on 
people who want something from you. So I think that finding like genuine connection and love is hard. And um, many people can't stand the periods um, in between when they f- when they do find that meaningful connection. So it's tricky business, but yeah, somebody's got to do it. Yep. So bringing people into your tribe and yeah, that'll make everything Definitely. better. Yeah. Good people with good intentions. You can't go wrong. Yep. All right. So in conclusion, at, at the end of the book, the question is stagnation or singularity? And uh, he goes through like the four scenarios of the future and it's everything from collapsing all the way to takeoff. And I'm sure you're in the takeoff bucket. <laughs> so how do we make sure, you know, we're all kind of working towards a good future like that, all building towards a future to make sure the whole economy, the world, the universe is in that takeoff bucket <laughs> and not the collapse bucket. I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Let's, let's run through all four scenarios really fast. So the first one is recurrent collapse where uh, progress goes up and down in an infinite struggle, basically, of uh, civilization builds up and then gets hit, hit by an asteroid or whatever, or a plague wipes, wipes out a bunch of uh, people, or there's a mass coronial ejection from the sun and all the technology and infrastructure gets wiped out. And in a couple hundred years, there's no trace of humans save, you know, a couple, you know, whatever it is. The point there, and if you want to, if you're interested in those ideas, I'd suggest exploring the work of Graham Hancock. Uh, there's human history is still being uncovered as we speak. Uh, real human history is being written right now. It's a really exciting time. Um, so that's, yeah, just a tidbit there. Uh, plateau where, you know, progress increases at a decreasing rate. Yeah, that's not a world of uh, opportunity. <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrifying world. Uh, and then number three scenario is extinction where it's obviously, I don't like meditating or considering these things, but they are very strong motivators. At the end of the day, 99.9% of all species that have ever lived on Earth have gone extinct. And we are a species. We're the uh, the most successful on the on the planet, I would argue, for a bunch of different reasons. That's an episode for another day. Yeah. Um, but the the point is we now hold our our own evolution in our hands. And we can we can make that choice. And we can make a choice that is um you know, takes into account all the other species on our planet and try to evolve in the way that's best for us, but also best for them. And then the fourth scenario here is uh, takeoff, where technological breakthroughs begin occurring and progress gets uh, infinitely better and better and better as time increases. And that's the that's the exciting future where you don't know what's coming because it's just better and beyond your wildest expectations. And that sounds like fanciful. So how do we bring this back into reality? I remember a really simple exercise I did back in before I went to Egypt, where I, for the first time in my life, set out a five-year plan. And side note, it wasn't a fun trip to Egypt. <laughs> Chad was on a deployment when we, <laughs> yeah, where first started dating. So. Yeah. And uh, so when I, I set out this five-year plan, I have, I have no idea what inspired me to do. I just remember I did it one day. And looking back, it's basically five years later now. I couldn't even imagine the opportunities I have. I know I've talked about this before. I'm sorry. Sorry for everybody that's listening out there. The point being, I couldn't even imagine the things that I'm doing now. But just by laying out a plan for what, in my mind then, I could imagine as being the best case future, the best case scenario, and then working hard towards it, I was able to somehow through, it didn't, didn't feel good during the whole time, lots and lots of failure, lots of, you know, horrible situations. But I was able to now get in a situation that is better than I could have even imagined. So that's one way of thinking about takeoff as it applies to you. Because one of the things that Peter says in the book, uh, I'm also quite fond of this idea, is that the life of 
know, when people talk about the singularity, that's way overblown. The real singularity that matters, that's exciting, is you. You are a singularity. You're a once in a, you know, bajillion times, like you're unique. You're never going to happen again. You're the collection of cells and experiences. Uh, they're never going to happen again. So treat your life as if you are a singularity. And yeah, that's yep. a great place to leave it. Yeah. So maybe a good way to finalize the episode is by a quote from the book. Let's do it. All right. So he says, the essential first step is to think for yourself. Only by seeing our world anew, as fresh and as strange as it was to the ancients who saw it at first, can we both recreate it and preserve it for the future. Cheers. Thanks to everybody for listening. And this is part two of our book club for zero to one. Make sure you subscribe at themission.co and we will see you next time. You'll see the book club, all kinds of good stuff in our newsletter. It goes out Monday through Friday. And uh, if you're not subscribed yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and leave a rating or review if you dare. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. See you next time. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.